Good evening. We toyed with when do we come back and how much time do we have to allow people to really work through this. Can I just tell you, we pray over this atmosphere. You're safe here. Uh, I just believe what I preach. Um, I believe that this atmosphere is set apart, it's sanctified, it's declared holy. God wants his people meeting together. I believe it with every ounce of my being. I believe this goes against everything that, that God has ordained. The Bible says, do not forsake the assembling together. He doesn't say in the, the exception to that is COVID. I'm sorry, I can't pamper it. I can't water it down to make you feel better. Do not forsake the assembling together. There's something that happens when the body of Christ assembles together. When believers meet in one accord, there's something that happens in the atmosphere. And can you get that on Facebook? I, probably, I don't know. But God says, do not forsake the assembling together. I promise you, we labor over this atmosphere. We pray that it's a safe place for you. And when we respond in obedience to God's word and we continue to assemble together, he will bless that. He'll bless it. And so I'm glad you're here tonight. Um, I want to talk to you tonight about providence. I, I know that I, I began to teach on it uh, the week before we, we stopped meeting, uh, but, but I'd really like to revisit it tonight. Baker's Bible Dictionary says providence means God not only looks ahead and attempts to make provision for his goals, but he infallibly accomplishes what he sets out to do. Providence is the sovereign, divine superintendence of all things, guiding them toward their divinely predetermined end in a way that's consistent with their created nature, all to the glory and the praise of God. Louis uh, Burkhoff de defines providence as the continued exercise of divine energy. Number one, whereby the creator preserves all his creatures. Number two, it's operative in all that comes to pass in the world. And number three, it directs all things to their appointed end. My favorite is the New City Catechism. It says, God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. Do you understand that God is the creator and the sustainer of everyone and everything? He is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in his power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. Nothing just happens except through him and by his will. Do you understand that nothing just happens? Do you believe that? Because that's what providence is. One of the place that we, places that we see providence at work in the scriptures is in the story of Abraham and Isaac. Remember the story of Abraham uh, sacrificing Isaac, his son. And before they went up into the mountain, Isaac said to his father, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God will provide, there's the word provide, providence, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. So I, I want you to picture this in your mind. We know that Abraham took Isaac up, the son he had prayed for, the son who had been promised to him, he took him up and said, God, uh, you know, if you don't provide a lamb, I, I'm going to trust that, that, I'm going to trust that somehow, you see the word providence, provide, Pros means uh, before. The word vide or in Latin vide, it means video. It's where we get our word video. It means to see before. 
That's what provide means. God sees before and he provides. He meets your needs according to his riches and glory. And Abraham, he gets Isaac up there. He straps him, uh, you know, ties him down to be ready to be sacrificed, to be that burnt offering. I can picture him raising that knife to kill his son thinking, God, <laughs> I know, I believe in your providence. I believe that you will provide yourself, uh, you will provide for yourself the lamb. And so I, I just picture him with, with that knife raised, thinking, I don't know how you're going to do it, Lord, but I believe in your providence. I believe that even though this thing looks bad right now, you are going to provide. You're working in ways I cannot see. Wherever it says provide in that story of Abraham and Isaac is the word to see before. It means making provision beforehand. And that's what Abraham knew. I wonder if we encountered our difficulties and our trials and our tribulations that way, that God, I, I'm not even going to look at what's happening around me. I'm going to believe that you see before and you have already made provision for me in it. Do you believe that? John Piper says, God never simply sees without acting. Do you believe that? He is God. He's not a passive participant in a world that exists without him sustaining it. Wherever God is looking, God is acting. If God perceives, he performs. If he inspects, he effects. A providence does not merely mean foreknowledge, but rather the active sustenance and governance of the universe. When God sees, he sees to it. His seeing is always with a view of doing. Where he patrols, Piper says, he controls. <laughs> Have you ever heard somebody say, I'll see to that for you. I'll, I'll see to it. And what that really means is I'll take care of it, I'll provide for it. And that's providence, the act of God seeing to it, seeing to the universe and, and his people. He'll see to your needs, he'll see to your, to you, to your pain and your heartache, he'll, he'll see to whatever you need. We were in Israel, I don't know, Leslie, uh, a year ago maybe, and we had a, a guide, we met a Jewish guide there, and, and he was talking about the story of Abraham and Isaac and how when Abraham said God will, God will provide, and he named the place uh, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord our provider. We know that name of God is the, the Lord our provider. And he said, oh, that name, that, that definition of the name is not nearly what it means. He said, it doesn't just mean Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, my provider. He said, it means God will see to it. God will see to it. Leslie was saying to me the other day, she, uh, something had happened and, and, and it troubled her deeply and, and she felt anxiety begin to rise up within in her and fear began to arise within her. And, and then she remembered that God invites us into a place of trust. And she said, God, I'm not going to worry about that. I'm not going to carry the anxiety about that. I'm going to say to you, what are you going to do about it? Because God will see to it. What would happen if we, every pain we encountered, every trial we went through, every circumstance that really tried to elicit anxiety and worry in us, what would happen if instead of taking on anxiety and fear and worry, we just said, God, you'll see to it. I'm just trusting you to see to this. You see, that's what providence is. It's God seeing to everything that concerns us. The Bible says he wants to perfect all that concerns us. Paul Helm says God's providence is the working of his power to uphold, guide, and care for his creation. 
providence happens because God passionately cares for you and I. He passionately cares about every detail of our lives, and he lives up to his promise not to abandon or forsake his people. Do you know that he promises you that? That he'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He'll never relax his hold on you. That's a promise from God, and he's a promise keeper. So in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your hard time, can you just say, God is not going to forsake me now. He is going to see to this. He is working in ways I cannot see. Turn over to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. I want to read verses 29 through 31. This is Jesus speaking. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. I love this. You see, sparrows in that time were not very valuable. Two of them were sold for a copper coin for a penny. But they were highly valued by God because he said, not one of them falls to the ground without my knowing it. That's providence. And he say, therefore, don't you fear, <laughs> because the very hairs on your head are numbered. That's how valuable you are to me. That's how much you're loved by me. That's how much I, I care about a sparrow falling to the ground. How much more do I care about you? Don't fear. What is there to be afraid of if you understand I have you, and I am seeing before, and I am providing for you, and I'm going to see to everything that concerns you in your life. Do you Believe that. Providence means the God who cares even about sparrows, cares about every detail of our lives. He is committed and invested for our good. I need to tell you that things do not randomly happen. They all serve a purpose and a plan in our life. By His Spirit, God steers our life, and, and he moves us and directs us, and, and he clarifies things for us, and he motivates us to make decisions that accomplish his will for our life. Everything that happens, nothing just happens. Everything that happens in your life is to drive you towards God's ordained will and purpose for your life. Providence is available for those who put their trust in God and take refuge in Him. And that's what we're going to see in our story tonight. I, but I need to promise you, no matter what you're going through right now, you need to hear me say clearly that God is involved in every aspect of your life. They're all included in His providential ordering. God forms you in the womb. Do you, do you understand that? He formed you. I'm praying right now for, for my grandchildren that are still to come, for my children who, who have not uh, uh, conceived yet. I'm, I'm praying for those babies that are not even formed, and I'm saying, Lord, knit them together. Create them. You knew them before they were ever even born. Now, now Father, I pray that you deposit your children in the, in the wombs of my daughter-in-laws. And my daughter, deposit your children because he formed you. You were not an accident. He formed you in the womb. He knows every intricate detail of your life. He ordains every step we take. He guides us, Scripture says. He directs us. He meets our needs according to his riches and glory. He sends prosperity and adversity. Can I tell you? He sends prosperity and adversity, and he ultimately appoints 
the time for us to die. That, this COVID stuff really gets me because people are so afraid of getting it because they might die. And I want to just say, dear one, the Bible says, and see, that's the truth that we build our life on. The Bible says that, that it's appointed to man to die once. That means if you're going to die, it was appointed anyway. That should bring us great peace. It should encourage and strengthen us when trials and troubles come in our life. We must consistently and constantly keep in mind that God, our Heavenly Father, is ordering and directing our lives. He knows everything about it. He's numbered the hairs on our head. He closed the grass and, and the flowers in the field. Nothing is left to chance. He tells the waves, you can go this far and no farther. That's how much he's in charge of our lives. He's the boss of the waves. Every time I, am I exaggerating, guys? Every time I go to the ocean, I will say to David Leslie, do you know that God tells these waves how far they can go? You can go this far and no, no farther is what the word of God says. That should give you peace. What if we lived that way? What if we rested in that truth? How would it change our lives? And that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. If you have your Bibles, open them to Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2. We're going to read the whole chapter tonight. I, I promise well, I'll get you out of here, but I, it's such a good chapter that I just want to read it through in its entirety. Ruth chapter 2. There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I might find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Then she left and went up and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened, don't miss that, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? So the, the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, it is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. Then Boaz said to Ruth, you will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go and glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. So she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? And Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you have left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and now have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work and a full reward be given to you by the God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. Then she said, let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Now Boaz said to her at mealtime, come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed parched grain to her and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. 
But when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even more among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Also let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about a path of barley. So then she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. So she brought it out and gave her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. And her mother-in-law said, said to her, where have you gleaned today, and where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. So she took in her mother-in-law with whom she had worked. So she told her mother-in-law with, uh, with whom she had worked and said, the, man, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord, who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, This man is a close relation of ours, one of our close relatives. Ruth the Moabitess said, He also said to me, You shall stay close by my young men until they have finished the harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women and that people do not meet you in any other field. So she stayed close by the young women uh, of Boaz to glean until the end of the barley harvest and wheat harvest. And she dwelt with her mother-in-law. My friend Marla's father passed away several months ago. Um, and I didn't send flowers at the time of his passing. And it wasn't an oversight on my part. It wasn't that I wasn't being a good friend. It, my actions were intentional. I, I waited purposely and sent flowers a few weeks after his funeral. And I did that because long after the casket is closed and the funeral ends, long after the flowers die and the, and the, the cards stop coming, long after the casseroles are no longer arriving at the doorstep, the pain of loss persists. And what I see so often when, when there's a death of a loved one, that friends and visitors go on with their lives after the funeral, and yet the one who lost the loved one <laughs> still is sitting in that pain and emptiness. I say that to you tonight because that's where our story picks up. Our story tonight picks up in the barley fields of Bethlehem, and, and you'll see it's a beautiful picture of redemption. But I don't want you to lose sight of the fact that both Ruth and Naomi have suffered immense loss, and they're still carrying the pain from it. The funerals are over, and the casseroles have stopped coming, but the pain is still very real. Life has to go on, but the pain uh, would have still been very prominent in Ruth and Naomi's life. And, and so our story picks up with these two hurting women, hoping somehow that God will come through for them, that God will somehow provide and take care of them. I, I wonder if you've ever been in that place where, where all hell is breaking loose in your life, and you wonder if God is even there, if he even cares, and if he's even going to provide for you. That's where Ruth and Naomi were. Tons of loss, tons of pain, but even in the midst of all that pain, the author is taking great pains to let us know that God is still present with them, and he's working in ways they cannot yet see. I love Cinderella's stories, and this story and the next two chapters of the book of Ruth are going to feel like a Cinderella story. They're an amazing picture of redemption and restoration, but I don't want you to lose sight of the pain. Chapter 1 was all about pain, and these women are still carrying that pain. 
Naomi said, I, I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. The Lord did this to me. He emptied me out. But, but the scripture is pointing us to the fact that God is about to fill them back up. Can I just tell you that nobody stays empty forever? If you're sitting here tonight and you feel empty, can I just tell you it's not going to last forever? God is in the business of filling his people back up. Do you know what's so interesting to me is that in this story of Ruth, I've read the whole, the whole book. I'm going to tell you there, there is no word from a prophet in this book. There's no signs and wonders. You don't, you don't see any miraculous signs and wonders in the pages. There are no visions or supernatural dreams recorded in the pages. <laughs> but the author makes sure that we don't lose sight that God is working behind the scenes. He is a God of perfect timing. He, he's sometimes silent, but he is never absent. So take note. The Bible says that they came to Bethlehem at the time of the beginning of the, the, the barley harvest. That is not mindless information. The author is giving us a hint that Ruth and Naomi's dark days are about to take a turn for the better. So look at how chapter 2 begins. It really seems like it's out of sequence for me. They, it opens with, with the author telling us about Boaz. We don't even know Boaz. We haven't been introduced to him. It's in a couple verses that Ruth stumbles into his field. But, but the author is starting out telling us about Boaz. He's a relative of Naomi's husband. We're going to find out next week. He's a kinsman redeemer. But Scripture tells us that he's a wealthy man, and they're not talking about just financial status there. That word wealth, it means, uh, it means that he has a man, he's a man of substance. He, it also means that he's integrous, that, that he is a man of, of great integrity, that he's got it all. He's the whole package. He's going to be a key player in this story. That word wealthy means he has virtue, he's got honor, he's got integrity, he's got valor. In fact, some commentators say he would have been a warrior. He had it all. And look at the parallel that the author is drawing there. Here is Ruth and Naomi coming back empty, and they're going to meet a man who, who, who is full, who has everything. As often is the case, Naomi and Ruth are in the dark about what God is doing in their lives, but the narrator is letting us know. He's letting us, the reader, in on the secret. Look at verse 2. God is working, but Naomi is stuck in her pain. She's immobilized by it, and, and Ruth knows they need to, to eat. And so in spite of her pain, she takes matters into her own hands. And she asks, and I love that she asks Naomi. It's a picture of honor. She's honoring Naomi. And she asks if she can go glean in the fields. She's hoping to find a generous landowner in whose sight she might find favor. You see, God had provided for this. They, they were poor. They were widows. Ruth was a foreigner. She had no way of making ends meet. And God had already made provision. In Deuteronomy uh, 24, we read that he tells, in fact, let's turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 24. It's verse 19 and 22. He says, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget the sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Look at that. If you leave it behind and you let the, the fatherless, the poor, and the widow get it, the Lord will bless you in return for that. I'm just going to tell you, you can never outgive God. 
And then he goes on to say, when you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the, the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather grapes in your vineyard, you shall not glean afterwards. You sh it shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. You see, God had made provision. He, he set up uh, for, for landowners that they could only glean down the middle of their field. The outer corners were, were not to be harvested. They were to be left for the poor, the fatherless, and the widow, for the foreigner. And Ruth knew that. Now, you need to know that it would have been very dangerous for her to do this. It was, not a, not, it was hard, hard work, but she was also very vulnerable. She didn't have any protection. And so for her to go in a field and begin to glean, it was dangerous for her. They were not nice to people who gleaned. They looked at them as poor, the out, outcasts of society. But I want you to see that Ruth is not sitting home feeling sorry for herself, as so many of us do when we're in pain. She's driven by the vow that she made for, to Naomi in chapter 1. She takes initiative to care and provide for her mother-in-law in spite of her circumstances and the hand she's been dealt. I want you to remember that these two women were childless. Ruth was barren and both were widows without any sons to validate him. In that culture, they would have been looked down on. They would have been discarded. But Ruth decides she's going to go out to glean, and she didn't even know who would allow her to glean in her field and what field she would land in. But look at verse 3. The Bible says, then she left and went and gleaned in the field of the reapers, and she happened, oh, there it is, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. One translation says, as luck would have it. The NIV says, as it turned out, and I like that because for Ruth, it was just another day of trying to be faithful, another day of putting others first and doing what was right, and she just happened to land in the field of Boaz. God was taking care of her. God had seen her need, providence. He had seen beforehand her need, and he was providing for her. Her choice of fields may have been random to her, but to God, nothing is random. As we read the story today, we can see God's hand all over this situation. But I wonder if Ruth could at the time. I want you to see just how this works. We see at the end of chapter 1 that they happened to come back to Bethlehem at just the right time, at the time of the barley harvest. And then we see that Ruth just happened to land in the field belonging to Boaz. And then a few verses later, we see that, that Boaz just happened to be there and visit the field just when Ruth was there. Look at all those just happens. Can I just tell you nothing just happens. It wasn't a coincidence. It was a God incidence. It was providence at work. And I want to encourage you tonight that no matter what it might seem like, God is working in your life. He is actively at work in your life. His providence is constantly at work, even in the seemingly insignificant details of life. God's good purposes are bound up in everything that happens along the way. Proverbs 16, 9 says, we can make our plans, but God determines our steps. That's providence. Nothing just happens. Ephesians 1, verse 11 says, I actually want to read it to you from the NLT. It says, furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance and he makes everything Listen to me. He makes everything work out according to his plan. D do you believe that? 
Do you believe that no matter how dark it might seem or how painful it might be, that God makes everything work out according to his plan? Psalm uh, 37, 23 says, the steps of a righteous man are ordered by God. He orders our steps. He directs our path. He makes everything work out according to his plan. Are you in a Moab moment right now? If so, hang on. God is working all things according to his plan. Verse 4, Boaz comes into his field and he greets his people. I want you to just see the blessing that he speaks over his people. It tells you so much about what kind of man he is. His people are genuinely happy to see him and he's genuinely concerned for their well-being and he blesses them. We see that he's an image bearer of Yahweh. Ruth is going to take notice of that as well. And then Boaz noticed Ruth and he says, who's in charge of this woman? Whose young woman is this? And the, 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 the servant identifies Ruth and she says, it's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from Moab. And he goes on to tell Boaz, she said to me, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested just a little. He's giving us a picture. Uh, we're learning a lot about Ruth just from his statement. She asks permission to glean. She doesn't demand it. And, and she's loyal and she's faithful and she's a hard worker. She continued, he says, from morning until now. She's a hard, hard worker. Verses 8 through 9, Boaz is going to address Ruth, and, and he's telling her that he's going to provide for her. He's going to protect her. He's going to tell his men not to touch her. And, and, and we just see his character shining through there. But look at what happens in verse 10. She falls on her face and bows to the ground and says, Why have I found favor in your eyes? Can I remind you that I'm a, a foreigner? And Boaz answered and says, It's been fully reported to me all that you've done for your mother-in-law how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and, and the people for whom you not know. It's been reported to me. I, I love that. It's been reported to him. You see, people were talking about Ruth's faithfulness. They were talking about her commitment. Hey, her character, as it always does, preceded her. Can I tell you that reputation is what man says about you, but character is what God knows about you. I am far more concerned about my character than I am my reputation. And Ruth, his, her character... The fact that she was loyal, that she was faithful, that she was loving and kind to a bitter mother-in-law had preceded her. People had reported to Boaz all that she had done. I just want to ask you, are you living in such a way that your good deeds are reported to other people, that they get there ahead of you, that people know about you? Matthew 5, 16 says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Can I tell you, sacrifice is seen. It's seen. Here's what I really want to focus on in the time that we have left. I, I want you to see this. If you don't have your Bibles open, open to Ruth chapter 2 uh, and look at verse 12. This is Boaz speaking, and, and he says, it's been reported to me all that you've done for your mother-in-law. It's been reported to me that you left your comfort, that you left your mother and your father and the land of your birth. It's been reported to me that you came to be a, a foreigner among a people who didn't even know you. And then he says, the Lord repay your work, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. I love that. The Lord repay you, he says. Repay her for doing what was right. Oh, 
Look at Psalm 58, verse 11. It says, surely, I've been, I've been chewing on this. I hardly, I didn't even want to preach on Ruth tonight. I just wanted to jump right to this verse and talk to you about it. Look at Psalm 58, verse 11. It says, surely, absolutely, positively, there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Notice he says he judges on earth, that there is a reward for you doing what is right. And he said, the Lord is judging on earth. What we do is right. Surely there is a reward. There is repayment for us doing what is right. That is so good. You could leave here tonight blessed just by that one little verse. I want you to think about it. Surely, absolutely, positively, this is a promise. There is a reward for the righteous here on earth. When we do what is right, even when we want to do what is wrong, when we make the decision to do what is right, there is reward. That word reward there means repayment. There's repayment. He says, surely the Lord repay you for all you're doing for Naomi. She was a bitter mother-in-law. She could not have been easy to get along with. Ruth left everything. And she was serving her. Great sacrifice to herself. And, and Boaz says, surely the Lord will repay you for what you're doing. Turn over to 2 Timothy 4, 8. I love this. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me in that day. And not only to me, but also to those who have loved his appearing. Uh, that word laid up, it means to put back for safekeeping. And, and the crown is a victor's crown. He said, surely there is a crown of righteousness, a, a crown for right living, a victor's crown for choosing to live right. You get a, when, when, when a runner would run a race, he would be crowned. The winner would get that crown for finishing well. Hmm. <laughs> Oh, Lord, help me just teach this. Did you understand? Surely there is a reward for righteous living here on earth. And the Bible says that there's a crown of righteousness awaiting for you to be crowned. Well done. You finished well. Look at that verse. To those who have loved his appearing. That, that loved his appearing, it, try to listen to me, is present tense. It means a habitual, continuous, ongoing love to his appearing. Hmm. Dave and I were talking about this. And if there's a crown of righteousness that waits for those who, who, who have chosen right and who have loved his appearing, Dave said, well, that's his second coming. I said, no, it's not, because it's present, it's continuous, it's ongoing. Who have loved his appearing. That word appearing means manifestation. It means to shine forth his glory. Oh, can I just tell you that there's a crown of righteousness waiting for those who have loved his manifestation. His, are you with me? That means every time I make a right decision, every time I do what is right by God, that, that I, the, the righteousness is what God says is right. Every time I choose to do right, baby, he gets to manifest in me. I love his appearing. I love to manifest his presence. I love for his glory to shine forth out of me. And how does that happen? Choose right. And surely there's a crown of righteousness <laughs> laid up for me. And not only for me, but to everyone who's loved that manifestation that comes from doing what's right. So good. Can I tell you, it grieves my soul to think I could get to heaven and realize I squandered 
the opportunities the Lord gave me to manifest his presence, to shine forth for him. Grieves me to think I could throw away opportunities to let him shine through me. Boaz said, Ruth, the Lord is going to repay you, and a full reward is going to be given to you because you've done what is right. Boaz was saying people were talking about Ruth and all she had sacrificed for her mother-in-law, and she would be blessed because of it. Can I tell you, you will always be blessed for the sacrifice. When you choose to sacrifice and love somebody who is unlovable, when you choose to do right when you want to do what's wrong, there will always be a blessing that comes for that. Righteousness matters. Hebrews 6.10 says, God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his name, his people, in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. The Lord won't forget when you minister to somebody. He's the God who sees. I don't want you to miss something about verse 12. It says, the Lord repay your work and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. Turn over to Psalm 57.1. It says, have mercy on me, my God. Have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. Boaz was saying, Ruth, you have taken refuge. You've come to God for refuge under his wing. The psalmist writes, have mercy on me, for I take refuge under the shelter of your wing. He noticed the four there. He was expecting mercy because he chose to run to God for refuge. He turned to him for protection, so did Ruth. And God was repaying and rewarding her, not because of what she did for Naomi, but because she chose to take refuge in him. God always rewards that. When we run to him for refuge, when we find what we need in him, when we believe that, that, that God will see to it, and you just rest in him. Ruth gets home, and she takes all this food that, that, that she had gleaned and, and the food that was left over from the dinner, and she's going back to her mother-in-law, and she spreads all this food. I heard somebody say uh, in one of the commentaries, it said that, that the amount of, of grain that she had gleaned could have accounted to about, in our time, $2,000 worth of groceries. So she gleaned a lot. He was very generous to her. And then she took food back to her mother-in-law. And, and I want you to look at verse 19. When she comes back, her mother-in-law begins to fire off a list of questions. Her mother-in-law said to her, where have you gleaned today and where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. Notice, I, I don't want you to miss this in, in closing, that Naomi blesses the one who took notice of Ruth and provided for them. I'm so intentional about this. I have people in my life who have been very generous with us and, and who have blessed Dave and I and, and doing things we couldn't normally do or, or providing for us. And I am intentional. I'm intentional about praying blessing over their life and asking God to reward them and, and repay them for what they've done. Every time I go to the P.O. box uh, for Snowdrop, every check I get out of that, I pray on the way out of that P.O. box, I pray blessing on those people that God would multiply and return to those people for the way they've blessed us because God does that. He repays and he rewards so Naomi is, is saying that he's, she's saying, blessed, we're going to pray blessing on the one who took notice of you. Look at verse 20. 
Blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. I, in closing, I just want to look at this word, kindness. Oh, we're going to talk next week about the kinsman redeemer and, and Boaz's responsibility to provide for Naomi and Ruth. But tonight, I want you to look at that word, kindness. The word for kindness in this passage is hesed. You've heard me teach on it many times. And the word has several meanings. It, it can mean kindness but as it's translated in this passage. But it can also mean goodness, mercy, pity, faithfulness. My favorite is zeal towards anyone. And, and this word, I was looking up all the places where this word is used, and, and it's used in one that you will be very familiar with in Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. It says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the God most high? Shall I come with him with burnt offerings, with a calf a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, old man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. He says, but to do justly, to love mercy, that's the word hesed, and to walk humbly with your God. To love mercy. The prophet Micah is saying, when you understand what God has done for you, you will want to give something back to him. And the thing he wants back for his people is to do justly and to love mercy, to be kind, to value it, to love it, to take great delight in doing it. And the mercy that Micah is talking about doesn't just mean to be kind to somebody. The meaning is so much deeper than that. Well, when, when Naomi said, who has shown this kindness to you? It wasn't just that they did something good. It's so much deeper than that. It goes far beyond our definition of kindness. God isn't just telling us to be kind. He wants us to love kindness. And that's important because at the time of Micah, people didn't love kindness. And I'm sure people today don't either. We love getting even. We love holding grudges. We love living offended. We, uh, I'm not sure that we love kindness. Chesed goes beyond. It goes against the grain of this world. Uh, the kindness that Mike is talking about is not just saying a nice word to someone or letting them go before you in traffic. Chesed is an inconvenient kindness. I know most of you are here tonight, and I don't think anyone is unkind. But this word is so much bigger than that. As followers of Christ, we try to be kind to one another. We smile at someone when they look at us or if they look sad, we try to cheer them up. We might even offer to pray for them. We hold the door open for someone. We, we, we offer to, to run errands for people. We pick up things that people have dropped and give it back to them. Those are all acts of kindness. But this word is so much deeper than that. It is an inconvenient act of kindness. Kindness that requires more effort on our part and demands sacrifice on our part. And you see, that always goes against our flesh. I read a commentary this week, and they described the word hesed like this. To give someone a ride when they have no car is a kindness. To forgive them for stealing your car and then offer them a job comes closer to Hesed. This type of kindness is inconvenient, and it requires sacrifice on our part. It usually goes against what we really feel like doing. And God tells us through the prophet Micah to love this kind of kindness. It's a kindness that doesn't give in to fleshly desires, maybe to get angry, or to but it replaces it with mercy and kindness. 
God loves this kind of mercy. In fact, Micah tells us he requires it of us. Tom Habgood says, God tells us to love kindness even if it's inconvenient. Hesed, inconvenient kindness, is to reach out with genuine compassion and love someone in desperate trouble who once hurt you so deeply you wish they were dead. Hesed is to find the words to say, I forgive you and I'm here for you to a friend who once betrayed you. Hesed is to come home to the dying parent who once abused you and comfort them in your arms. So if we look at hesed as an inconvenient act of kindness, what it really means is putting aside your feelings of judgment and revenge and just allowing the Spirit of God to lead you into an act of pure grace that you could never have done on yourself. That's because it's inconvenient to be a disciple of Jesus Christ because Christ is always putting the wrong people in front of us and telling us just to love them. No matter what they've done to you or said to you or called you, just love them. I don't know about you, but that kind of kindness and that kind of showing mercy can change the world. And God says, I wanted to start with my people. I require that of you. I require it of you. I was reading this story, and I had so much I want to say, so much I want to teach, but I want to be mindful of the time. And it just occurred to me that we can stay stuck because of all the yuck in our life, all the pain in our life. That's what we see in chapter one of Ruth, isn't it? Self-pity, inward-focused, God, you let me down. And then in two, chapter two, where we start to see God's hand at work that was really still in work in chapter one, but they just didn't want to see it, then things start to change. But it's all how we want to live our life because as disciples, as followers of Christ, we receive the challenge that he really does care about us and that he'll never forsake us. And the challenge is that when we're in hard times, when we're going through troubles and trials and, and tribulations, to be able to say, God will see to it. God, what are you going to do about this? Because it's yours. You're going to see to it. Because you are God who provides. You are Jehovah Jireh, the, the, the Lord, my provider, the one who will see to it. And we see that in the chapter 2 of Ruth. We see that God was seeing to it. He was working behind the scenes. Even when they couldn't see him, he was still working behind the scenes. And the challenge is always, will I believe that? Will I believe that no matter how hard the circumstances are right now, God will see to it. And he is working on my behalf, all things together for my good and his glory. Or will you allow the enemy to direct your eyes onto the circumstances, onto what you don't have or what's not going your way, and live in a, in a pit of self-pity and defeat? That's the challenge. I hate roller coasters. Can I just tell you? I hate them. I hate them. Leslie loves them. She loves them. And, and like she always wants to go on roller coasters. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm trying to find every excuse in the book not to go on a roller coaster with her. I, I use my neck all the time. I can't, my neck's really bad. I can't do it. But she absolutely loves roller coasters. And, 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 and you know, the kind of roller coasters that, that take forever to climb up, like forever. And the whole time you're climbing up and you're like this, you're thinking, I know there's going to be a drop on the other side of this and it's going to be like 20 feet down and, and your stomach's going to go, uh, 20 stories down and your stomach's going to go and she's loving it. And I'm like hanging on for dear life and my knuckles are white and, and I'm like, I just want to get this over with. I just want this over with. And, and I'm looking over at Leslie and her eyes are like, she is so excited and can hardly wait to get to the top and go down. And 
At Disney, they take pictures of you when you're going down that 20 drop. I wish we would have bought some. You get down, we never buy them, we're too cheap. But uh, when you get down, they, they have a video that you can see the picture of you coming down that 20-story drop. Hilarious. Leslie, she's like this. I'm like this. And I'm terrified, you know, and I'm screaming. And she's like such joy. She can just, and she loves it. And she gets to the bottom. She's like, let's do it again. <laughs> Not me. Two different people, two different perspectives. That's our choice in life. Pity party of one. Hanging on for dear life, just wanting to get it over with. Our hands held high in praise. You'll see to it, Lord, I'm just going to enjoy the ride. I'm just going to enjoy the ride. It's a choice. He set before us life and death. We get to choose how we go through this life. Hanging on for dear life, wishing it was over, dreading every last moment of it, or hands raised high, enjoying the ride. It's a choice. And that's what we're going to see next week and the week after in the book of Ruth. It's such a picture of redemption, such a picture of restoration. How would our life change if we just could rest, knowing that God will see to it? Stinks. I hate it. Not a lot of fun walking through it. I'm going to enjoy the ride because I know I have a father I can trust who will see to it. So, Father, we thank you that you are faithful, that you are good, and that you will provide at every turn in our life. Thank you that you are Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, my provider, the God who will see to it. And so, Father, challenge us, your people, this week as we go out. Father, help us to live in a place of rest and surrender, knowing that you have us and that you will see to everything that concerns us and that you'll perfect it, Lord God. 
Would you bless my brothers and my sisters, Lord God? Would you give us increased revelation of who you are and what you want to do in our life, Lord? Would you take us to a deeper place of trust and release in you? And Father, would you draw us deeper into the truth of who you are and how very much we are loved and treasured by you? We ask these things, Lord, in the mighty and the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.